focusing a bit on the Christ in us portion. And I hope you'll see through that, that focusing on the Christ in us naturally leads to shining in our community. But as I've been preparing and thinking about this passage, the question I've been considering the most is what does my life or your life communicate about what you love most? Now you can think about this a bunch of ways. What does what you prioritize or what you spend time on or what you spend money on uh, or what you get the most joy from or what you become the most disappointed over or what makes you the most angry? All of these things reveal something about what you love, what I love. And the answer to these questions demonstrates something about where we as Christians are setting up our residence. Are we living for Christ, in Christ, or are we living in the world? And this really leads to another question that I've been asking myself, and I encourage you to ask yourself, what is keeping you from being completely devoted to Jesus? Now, this could be because devotion seems uh, superficial or trivial. I know that I've thought that in my own life. Maybe it's too difficult. Maybe you're too busy. Maybe you feel you have to prioritize other things in your life. Maybe that kind of commitment seems legalistic. There's too many rules. Maybe you aren't convinced everything we say about Jesus is true. Or maybe other Christians have ruined it for you. Well, today we're going to look at John 15, 1 through 11, which was written to us to convince us to experientially devote ourselves to Jesus. Now, John 15 is in this larger section of John 13 through 17, which is really an important section. It's perhaps the pinnacle of Christ's teaching. The setting here is the Last Supper. The disciples are with Christ celebrating the Last Supper, which was a Passover meal. And Jesus is about to be taken away to be crucified. And he has celebrated this time with his disciples where at the beginning in John 13, he washes their feet. After he washes their feet, this is when he sends Judas out, who is going to betray him that same evening. This is where he gives him and us, the church, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, which teaches the church to reflect on Christ and to declare the core of our faith, which is Christ. So a lot is happening in John 13 through 17, all in the same place, the Last Supper. And it's at this point, when he knows he will soon be leaving them, that he teaches them, he implores them to abide in him, even when he's physically gone. He says in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in in me. And I think the natural question to ask when you read a verse like this, abide is a command, abide in me, Christ. What does it mean to be abide, to abide? Now, abiding could be translated remain. So remain in Christ. Or it also could be translated reside, reside in Christ, put your dwelling in Christ. It has the idea of making Christ your permanent residence. So that you can say, Jesus is my home. He is where I dwell. I dwell in Christ. Now, Jesus here is commanding believers to abide in him. And the picture he's using is one of a branch remaining 
or abiding in a vine. I mean, if you look here out the window, you can see a tree that has branches that, are, that have leaves on them. And we can understand that the branch requires the tree for life. It needs the tree for life. The branch is dependent on the tree for life. It can't live apart from the tree. If you cut the branch off, it would die. Now, in a similar way to a branch abiding in a tree, this passage, uh, passage is trying to convince us to abide in Christ. Now, briefly, when we look at the whole passage in a couple different places, we can see a little more precisely what abiding in Christ looks like, what it means to abide in Christ. We see, number one, abiding in Christ is a choice. It's a choice because it's a command. Abide in me. He's telling them to do something, to choose to do something. Number two, we see abiding has the idea of constant dependence. He says in the next verse, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. So you're dependent on Christ. You need Christ. We also see that part of abiding is adopting the words of Jesus. He says in verse 7, two verses later, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, notice, my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. And then finally, part of abiding is living in the love of Jesus. He says in verses 9 and 10 towards the end of the section, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And so Christ's love is his default. Notice here in the past, I have loved you in the first part of verse 9, which then leads to our choice to abide in him through obedience, through keeping his commands. And so all of these, if we take them together, we have to make a choice. We have to be dependent of, on Christ. His words have to abide in us. We have to abide in his love. We can understand, I think, that abiding is a choice to live in a state of dependent attachment to the person, words, and love of Christ. Kind of a long definition, but it summarizes what Jesus is trying to communicate in this passage. And so just as the vine or just as we, or the branch, requires the vine for healthy daily life, we require Christ for healthy daily life. And he is calling me and he is calling you to make the choice to abide in Christ in your life today. Now we see here, all throughout this, our abiding in Christ. While that is happening, God is doing something. We see in 1 and 2, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. God does two things. The first thing he does, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So God is working in some way outside of our abiding with Christ for judgment. We also see that God is pruning. He says, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Um, the idea of pruning here, um, it could be discipline. So God disciplines us so that we produce more fruit. It also could be God's providential ordering of circumstances in our life to lead to more fruit. Um, I've, I think about this because uh, Pastor Greg really helped me in one area of my life where I just, you know, it was a tough time, struggling with a lot of difficulty. 
And he asked me the question, which has stuck with me, um, how do you think God wants to use this difficulty in your life to make you more like Jesus? And that's a really good question. And that's what he's getting at here, the pruning of yourself for the sake of more fruit. God wants to make me and he wants to make you more like Jesus. And so in this passage, he's trying to convince his disciples that they can and must trust in him, abide in him when he's gone. And he wants you to abide in him and to choose to live in a state of dependent attachment to the person, words, and love of Jesus. And so what we're going to do today is we are going to look at six reasons from John 15, 1 through 11, why we should choose to abide in Christ. Number one, the first reason why we should abide in Christ is because abiding bears fruit. Abiding bears fruit. He says in verse 4, we've seen it already, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So if you abide, there will be fruit. He says in the next verse, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Now, if you think about the New Testament, you will understand, I think, pretty quickly that the fruit that God most wants to see in your life and in my life is the fruit of the Spirit. Um, in Galatians 5, Paul says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And so God wants to see, through your abiding in Christ, the fruit of the Spirit produced in your life. That is what he wants to see and wants to produce in your life. We also see that uh, there's an es uh, especially a focus in the New Testament, and even in John 15, on love. In John 15, 9 through 10, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. He also goes on a couple verses later in 12 and 13, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you, Greater love is no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And then he goes on in verse 17, same context. These things I command you, that you love one another. And we can really get a picture here through these three verses of how abiding in Jesus leads to our relationship with others changing. Because we abide in Christ, which produces fruit, and part of that fruit is love, which changes how we treat one another. And so there's a direct connection to abiding, or between abiding and loving one another, shining our light. We also see in the passage that this fruit is coming from a state of dependence. Uh, we mentioned in verse 5, part of what it means to abide is to depend. Uh, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And so we're, we're taught here that dependence is a part of abiding. And at a fundamental level, at a gospel theology level, we realize that fruit of the Spirit is only possible through the Spirit. Which means that Christ dying on the cross for us in his sending of the Spirit into our hearts is the source of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit will not come apart from the saving work 
of Christ and the sanctifying work of his spirit. And so that's a, a fundamental uh, understanding of how Christ and the spirit work to produce fruit in our lives. But we can also understand in this passage that dependence in daily life, we have a uh, responsibility to depend on Jesus, looks like three things. Now, the first thing that it looks like is faith. Dependence looks like faith. You have to have faith to depend on Jesus. This is because I believe that I need help. I have faith that I need help as a person. And I turn to Christ for that help by believing that he can provide it. And so faith is an act of dependence on Jesus. We also understand that part of dependence is not only faith, but obedience. Now this overlaps with faith, but we understand that through obedience, we follow Christ's commands because we believe that his commands are true, that they're worth following, that we need them for life. And then number three, prayer is part of dependence. Um, this is perhaps the, one of the clearest signs because prayer is turning to God for help. I have this situation, or part of prayer, I have this situation in my life and I need help, and so I pray for help. And so these all overlap, but part of depending on Christ is living in daily faith, obedience, and prayer. And so then we can understand and, and kind of get a grasp that abiding in Christ leads to fruit. Now, how many times have you heard or told others that uh, you become like those whom you are around? I know my parents told me that quite a bit growing up and weren't always pleased with who I was around. And even as an adult, I've understood uh, that even if you want to have a significant skill or uh, ability, if you spend time with people who have that skill and ability, you will learn it. Now, when it comes to being a Christian, communing with Christ or remaining with Christ residing with Jesus leads to being like Jesus. You don't see apple branches or apple fruit, the fruit of an apple, an apple is a fruit, um, on orange trees. It just doesn't happen that way. You get Christ's fruit from being with Christ, and you're not going to get that fruit from any other source. And so this will impact your life both in who you are and what you do. These are related things, but uh, helpful to distinguish them sometimes. Who you are refers to your character, the virtues that you show, uh, the kind of person that God, God has called you to be. So spending time with Christ will fashion you into a certain type of person with a certain character and certain virtues, the fruit of the Spirit. But it will also change what you do, the actions that you decide to choose in your life. Now, we can understand that both who we are and what we do are related. Who you are leads to what you do. And what you do reveals something about who you actually are. And abiding in Christ, communing with him, depending on him, changes both who you are and what you do. It produces fruit. It matters who you hang out with. And Christ here in this passage wants you to hang out with him. When the youth group taught this, they said, stick with Jesus, which kind of has the idea uh, there. 
It's foolish to imagine that a healthy branch with great fruit will, ap- will happen apart from the source. Now, uh, one of the church fathers, Cyril of Alexandria, said this, um, For no fruit of virtue will spring up anew in those of us who have fallen away from intimate union with Christ. To those, however, who are joined to the one who is able to strengthen them and who nourishes them in righteousness, the capacity to bear fruit will be readily will readily be added by the provision and grace of the Spirit, which is like a life-producing water. So there's a couple of conclusions we can think about when we consider that abiding in Christ leads to fruit. Uh, Number one, fruit of the Spirit especially uh, are a powerful witness to the world, which does not value these fruit. Um, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control— are not valued virtues of our culture. And so when we are producing these fruit of the Spirit, we are going to stick out in our world. We're going to shine the light to our world in a unique way because it's different. It's one of the primary ways Christians are meant to be different from the world. The world cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit. We can also understand, number two, that fruit does not come by your will or by gritting your teeth and working hard, but by relationship. Our default, as uh, especially Western uh, Christians, is to think that I just need to work harder and I'll produce this fruit. But fruit comes through relationship, not effort. And then finally, and we'll touch a bit on this at the end, uh, fruit-producing relationship with Christ is worth difficulty and sacrifice. It is something in your life that is worth sacrificing for. And so we love Christ and want to be like Christ, and abiding gets us there. And one of the, the reasons, the primary reason Jesus gives us in this passage for abiding in him is that it'll produce fruit. It'll change your life by giving you the fruit of the Spirit. The second reason that we abide in Jesus is that the unfruitful are destroyed. The unfruitful are destroyed. Now, he gives the first hint of this in uh, verse 2, which we already read, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And this has given a lot of people anxiety. What does it mean he takes away? Does this mean, the question is, that those in John 3.16 who have believed in Christ can be destroyed? can be taken away. If I have believed in Jesus, can I be taken away? Is that what he's teaching? There's really three views of this in this passage. Number one, uh, the view is that if you do not abide, then you lose your salvation. So these people would say, yes, if you believe, but you do not abide, you are taken away. The number two view, the second view, is that if you do not abide, then you suffer only a lack of fellowship. These people say he's not talking about destruction. He's just talking about not being close to Christ. If you don't abide, you're not going to be destroyed, but you won't have a close relationship with him. The third view is that if you do not abide, you reveal yourself as never having been saved in the first place. Now, I think this passage and the witness of the rest of Scripture teaches that abiding in Christ, the third view, Uh, is a sign of salvation and only possible because of salvation. Not abiding in Christ is a sign of no 
salvation. And so we'll look at a couple reasons why I think this passage is, te- this passage is teaching this. First, we have to ask the question, what is at stake, fellowship or destruction? I think it's pretty clear from this passage that he is talking about destruction or hell rather than a loss of fellowship. Now, it's less clear in verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But he elaborates on this in verse 6. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Now, if you think about a branch, branches... Uh, are not refined by fire. Elsewhere in Scripture, we have the idea of refining fire. Branches are not refined by fire. They are destroyed by fire. And so I think because of that reason, primarily, he is meaning to give a severe warning. Now, the thing is, though, in this passage, if you're thinking about John, uh, Michelle read 15, 1 through 17, It doesn't seem like Jesus' goal in this passage is to discourage people. It doesn't seem like his goal in this passage is to scare people. And I think we see that when we understand verse 3, which is very important. Now, the first reason here why Uh, abiding reveals that you have not been saved, we find in verse 3, is that these disciples are already clean because of Christ's word. Now we see in verse 2, as we saw, every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But something is different about the disciples. And this is what he says in verse 3. He says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now, this is kind of a weird thing to say. I mean, he says first, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and then you are clean. And even if you look at the book of John, this word clean is only found like one other time. It's actually a very important other time. We'll look at it in a second. But um, if you look in the Greek, it is a little clearer. I've highlighted these two words here. Uh, You see verse 2, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. And then verse 3, that it may bear more fruit, you are already clean. Uh, The word for prune and the word for clean are actually very closely related. Not quite synonyms, but closely related. So you could almost say, uh, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. You are already pruned. And you get the idea there that at least God has already done some kind of work in the disciples' heart. Now, the one other time clean is used in John's gospel is in the same uh, discourse in John 13. When Jesus is talking to Peter, and Peter is uh, very much against his feet being washed at first, uh, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, note this, you are, uh, he was bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he says, you are not all clean. And so in John 13, the reason that they are not clean is because of Judas. Judas was a disciple. Judas believed in Jesus, but Judas would ultimately betray Christ. 
He was not a true believer. And immediately following this foot washing, Jesus sends Judas out. And in fact, Judas would betray him that very same night, proving that he was not a true disciple. And so notice here, by John 15, he is able to say, you already are clean without any qualification. Before he had said, you are clean, but not all of you, but now already you are clean. And so something has changed, and the reason for this is because the fake disciple has left. Notice here also the reason for their cleanliness is because of Christ's word. Notice also that he says already, which implies a finished work. It is done. It is in the past. It is complete. And so you can see here and begin to get a picture that Jesus is actually comforting his disciples. Because you see first, yes, some branches are going to be taken away. Some branches are going to be pruned. But I have already done a work in your life. I have already cleansed you through my word, which you have believed in. And that gives comfort rather than fear. The disciples had already experienced Christ's cleansing work in the past. And Judas was not a part of this equation. Um, He was not told that he was clean, and neither was Judas told to abide, because he couldn't abide because he hadn't been cleansed. And so abiding is only possible because of the work of Christ. And so verse 3 then, I think, uh, shows uh, powerfully that Christ has already done a saving work in those who are told to abide, which is meant to provide them comfort and assurance. The choice to abide is a fruit of already being clean. Now, we also see if we broaden ourselves out to other passages, and maybe even if we stay in John, that Scripture teaches that salvation is permanent. Um, We see in John 6, 37 through 40, all that the Father gives me will come to me, all of them, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. So one who comes to me will not be cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, all the people he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. So we have the moment of our belief, and then we have everlasting life, which comes after our life. And we're told here that if we believe, everlasting life will follow. And this is what, you know, Romans 8 teaches. There's an unbreakable chain between God's calling and his justifying us and our glorification. Now we also see John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So notice first, a character, uh, characteristic of sheep is that they follow the shepherd. Then he says, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And so those who uh, believe Christ, those who are his sheep, cannot be snatched out of the hand of Christ. And that includes you, yourself. You are unable to take yourself out of the hand of Christ. And one of the reasons is because Christ and his work is stronger and more sure 
than your ability to make bad choices. Christ is greater than your ability to make bad choices. And notice that's what he emphasizes here in John 10 at the end of uh, verse 29. My father is greater than all. That's the reason why no one can snatch uh, us out of the father's hand. Now, the biggest issue in this passage or potential issue for this view is verse 2. When he says, every branch in me, which seems to indicate salvation, uh, they were in me, but he has taken them away. Now this, uh, it's not a perfect explanation, but with the reasons we just considered, I think it makes the most sense to see this not as technical theological language about union with Christ or salvation, but he's referring to people like Judas, disciples by name, but not true disciples. Everyone would have considered Judas to be a disciple. He called himself a disciple. Others considered him a disciple, but he was not truly a follower of Christ. He was actually a wolf in sheep's clothing. And so these are the types of people that Jesus is referring to here. Now we have a similar example in John 8. When uh, Jesus distinguishes here, notice this, uh, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So we have a group of people who believed in Jesus. But then he said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So the fact that they had believed did not necessarily mean that they were true disciples. And this is also what we see in uh, James, when James says that even the, even the demons believe and shudder. There is a type of belief that is a false belief. Now, the thing you naturally think of at this point, I think, is what about backsliding and messing up and making mistakes? And I think uh, the abiding analogy can actually help with this, um, especially if you translate it reside. So if abiding means residing in Christ, living in Christ, making your resident, your, your permanent residence, Christ, we can think about it this way. If my residence, my address is 45 Mountain Street, um, and I go camping for a weekend, uh, nobody is going to come to me and say, well, you went camping for a weekend, but your address is 45 Mountain Street. Uh, your residence has changed. No one would tell me that, because just because I left for a night or a weekend or a week, it hasn't changed my residence. 45 Mountain Street is my residence, and I think it's the same with Christ. Backsliding or making mistakes doesn't change our residence. It's just mistakes that we have made, of which we repent and turn to Jesus. Now, on the other hand, if I say my address is 45 Mountain Street, but I've never lived there, is it really my home? I can write down that that's my address all I want. I can tell people it's my address all I want, but I have never set my residence there. It's not really my home. And the same as it is with Jesus. You can say, like Ju Judas, I believe in Jesus all you want, but Judas proved himself to not be a true follower of Christ. Now, I think we'll move on here. I think Jesus does not make this point to discourage, but he is trying to encourage us that Christ is all-powerful and sufficient to produce fruit in your life and in my life. And he is going to produce fruit in the lives of those who are attached to the vine. 
He is going to do it, not because of you, but because of his power and his strength. And this should give us confidence, like Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And that is the confidence that we are meant to have as believers, confidence that Christ's work accomplishes what it was meant to accomplish. Now, number three, not only do we abide because it produces fruit, and those who do not abide are destroyed, but we abide because your prayers will be answered. Um, in, in verse 7, this is what Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Now notice here a key to the prayer aspect, which is the second part of the verse, is the my words abiding you in you in the first part of the verse. And so we can understand here that what Jesus is calling us to, as we talked about earlier, is to adopt Christ's words and make them your own. Now, this is something that is throughout the scriptures. Psalm 1, uh, 1 for example, which is kind of the uh, bookend of the whole book of Psalms. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And so God is calling us to saturate ourselves with the word of God. We see this also in Psalm 119. And I think we can understand, as one theologian I said, uh, I read said, um, that the idea here is that we are called to love Christ's words. We're called to believe Christ's words. We're called to meditate as Christ, on Christ's words, as Psalm 1 says here. And we're called to accomplish Christ's words, to live them out. And when this is true, when you have adopted Christ's words, when his words are your words, you believe them, you love them, you meditate on them, you follow them, your thoughts and desires are going to be aligned with Jesus. They will be changed to be the thoughts and desires of Jesus. And because of this, your prayers will be aligned with God's words, and they will be answered. Now, he's not promising here that if you abide, I can pray for a, a private jet and a new boat, um, or whatever your hobby is. I have lots of hobbies, so I get it. Um, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that if his words become your words, you will be so aligned with his will that you will, you will pray aligned with the desires of God. Now, this includes the things in the passage we're talking about. This means praying for fruit. Lord, produce fruit in my life. I hope that's your prayer. This means praying for dependence. Lord, help me to trust in you alone and not the world. Lord, help me to glorify you in all I do. Lord, please give me your joy. Lord, help me to abide in you. Those are prayers that are aligned with the will of God. We know that because they are found in his words as we're looking at them today. Number four, not only will our prayers be answered, but God will be glorified if we abide in Christ. And this is a reason to abide in him. He says in the next verse, verse eight, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Now, as believers, 
We are called to glorify God in everything we do. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, I'm abiding, or he says, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all, not some things, but all to the glory of God. So this means uh, reading your Bible and reading a novel. This means uh, going to church and riding your bike. Everything you do is meant to glorify God. And I think a simple way of understanding what it means to glorify God is uh, you are living in such a way and doing things in such a way that reveal God for who he actually is. Someone who is beautiful and true and holy and wonderful and worth following. That is glorifying him. Now, when we think about this passage and abiding in Christ, which produces fruit, which glorifies God, we understand that abiding in Christ shows that God is all-powerful. So it glorifies him by revealing him to be all-powerful. He is able to bring life-giving fruit in your life. He is powerful enough to do that. And that's really saying something because our hearts are so desperately wicked. Fruit does not come naturally for human beings. And God is powerful enough to produce that in your life. It also glorifies God because it shows that he is good. He produces good fruit in our lives, not bad fruit, not rotten fruit not buggy fruit. It also glorifies God because it shows that God's commands are worth following. And then finally, it shows that God's words are true. And so abiding in Christ reveals God. It shows God to be who he actually is. He truly is an all-powerful God who is the only one worth following. And so abiding in Christ will lead to the glory of of God. Number five, we abide in Christ because Christ's joy will be in you. Now, human beings are universally searching for joy or fulfillment or some kind of peace. And we search for that in a lot of different ways as humans. Now, biblically, I, I do think that it's not helpful to distinguish between happiness and joy. Um, sometimes you'll hear people say that happiness is just a feeling based on circumstances, but joy is something firm and foundational that outlasts circumstances. Now, I think when we explain it that way, we don't really mean joy. We mean something like faith or confidence. But biblically, Scripture is actually seeing and understanding joy as something we experience and feel. The real question is not whether you have happiness or joy— the real question is, where is your happiness and joy found? Where do you get it from? That's the real question. Even if the circumstances in life are terrible, I'm still called to feel joy. The difference is, the joy is not found in the circumstances. The joy is found in our amazing creator and his joy. He's the source of joy. Now, the default position of the unabiding self is ultimately an anxious, depressed, or unfulfilled self. Now, there can be many contributing causes to anxiety and depression which may need to be addressed in order to best abide. But this is the default setting of the soul apart from Christ. I have um, in my office a painting 
to remind me of this. This is uh, Edward Munch, I think you say his name, Edvard. Uh, the Scream. I know it's kind of a depressing painting, but I have this on my wall. Um, and the important, you notice in this painting, there's two people walking away from this person in terror, which kind of gives us the idea of loneliness, uh, kind of lonely terror. Um, and the reason I have this in my office is, is because it reminds me that no matter the happy faces that people are putting on in their life, this is the state of what it, of, of being human apart from Jesus. And this is what I'm fighting for, to, to help people find their fulfillment and joy in Christ. And sometimes when people put on the mask, it can discourage you from sharing Christ with them. Uh, but this is where we are apart from Jesus. There's nowhere else, there's no joy apart from Jesus. And the pathway to joy is given to us uh, in this passage. In verse 11, Christ says, These things, which is John 15, 1 through 10, all the things I've just told you, told you, abide in me and you'll produce fruit. All of these things I have just told you, I have spoken to you so that my joy would be in you. Christ is concerned for your joy. He wants you to have a joyful existence. And he says here that the pathway to living a joyful life is through abiding in him. Um, this is not a, this is truth. Half-hearted Christianity is never going to be the pathway to joy. But choosing in a dependent a state of dependent attachment to the person, words, and love of Christ is the way of joy. He is worth it. Notice here also that the joy is not just your joy. He's not just making you happy that simply, but he wants his joy to be your joy. And this is very important because remember, Christ is telling them this about his joy the moment before he's about to go cry drops of blood. And he knows that's coming. This is what he's commanding them and telling them about joy as he's going to suffer. And we can understand a bit of this, you know, how in the world, why did he have joy in such a tough moment? It's because he had joy in something that wasn't tough. Hebrews 12 tells us, therefore also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So the author says, uh, run this race well, looking to Jesus. What did Jesus do? Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so Jesus, because of what was coming, was able to find joy in what was coming and what his death and resurrection would accomplish, and which helped him to get through the difficulty. And he's calling his disciples, he's calling you to have the same joy. Now, the thing we can understand, lastly, is that Christ is worth abiding in. 
When you see in verse 4 that Jesus says, abide in me, uh, we have to understand that the pronoun me encompasses all of the truth of Jesus that the scriptures teach. That is who he is telling, the one who has been sent by God, who is 100% God and 100% man, to die on the cross, taking all of our sins upon himself, suffering the wrath of God, and, and, and dying, and, and then resurrecting three days later. And all of us who believe in him will have eternal life. That is the me, and so much more, that he is calling us to abide in. He says in verse 1, I am the true vine. And so maybe you, I don't know today, maybe you're unsure about giving your life to Christ. You haven't committed to Christ. And for you, this passage, as it should show all of us, should show you that you desperately need Jesus. John says in verse 13, a couple of verses after the ones we've been looking at, a greater love is no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And Christ has laid down his life for you. Uh, if we go on a couple of verses later, he, he talks about calling us his friends. He has laid down his life for his friends. And, and you know, he hasn't just produced eternal life in the future for you. He has changed reality now to defeat, defeat the powers that cause anxiety, depression, dread, and unfulfillment. Christ's death has changed things right now. And he's wanting to change your life right now. And he's calling you to devote yourself to him in faith and dependence believing that he's the way, the truth, and the life, as he had just said in the previous chapter in John 14. And for all of us as Christians, he is calling us to abide in him. And it might seem stifling or rote or legalistic or inhibiting you from your fullest experience of life, but in reality, these are all lies from the devil. There's no true joy apart from abiding in Christ. Christ never deals with the serious things of life in flippant or trivial ways. Christ is a worthwhile priority in a busy and difficult life. Christ is the opposite of a rote, rule-following, emotionless religion. He is worth your choice to abide in him in such a way that doesn't even begin to compare with the other options in this world that fight for our attention. And so he's calling us to abide in him. And um, as we close here, I want you to consider that God is calling you today to take a step in your life, a meaningful step closer to him. God is not calling you to hear his word and to do nothing. He is calling you to take steps closer to him. And so I have some suggestions here. I would encourage you to pick one of them, uh, not all of them. Focus on one thing. Take a step closer to Jesus. Um, for some of you, you might simply need to choose to abide in Jesus. Maybe you haven't made the choice. God is calling you to abide in him. For some of you, <clears throat> God might be calling you to be willing to reorder the priorities in your life. Now, this is one that uh, I've thought a lot about in my own life, um, especially about the question, uh, what am I willing to make sacrifices for in my life? 
because what you're willing to sacrifice for teaches you a lot about what you value. And so I thought about myself, and I, you know, I've been running a lot lately. I don't really like running, but I'm just doing it to do it once in my life. Um, and I realized I was sacrificing sleep and time sometimes to wake up at 4.30 and run. And just because of schedule, I had to. Now, why am I willing to wake up at 4.30 and to sacrifice my sleep and time to run, but not willing to get up early on busy days to prioritize Christ in the same way? It taught me something about what I'm willing to make sacrifices for in a way that I should be making sacrifices for Jesus. So that's, you can ask that about your life. Maybe it'll help you as it helped me. Another thing you can think about is maybe God, to help you abide in Christ, is calling you to adjust your input. Now, what I mean here is, uh, remember that if we're going to abide in Christ, we have to spend time with him, to be like him. And the truth is, in our digital age, uh, we are receiving a lot of input from movies, from TV shows, from social media, from YouTube, uh, from news and politics. Uh, and all of these things affect who you are and what you produce in your life. They all produce something. And so maybe God is calling you to uh, maybe adjust the quantity, how much you're taking in, or maybe adjust the quality to, you know, stop taking in some things that you're taking in that you shouldn't be taking in. Um, for me, one thing that I did that helped me a lot and has been uh, devastating is uh, uh, I have an iPhone. I'm a fan. And uh, I put a 30-minute limit on YouTube on my iPhone through screen time. That's terrible. But it really changes uh, your life and how much time you spend on something like YouTube. Uh, and then lastly, <clears throat> so consider that. And lastly, maybe for you, what you need to do is just choose to commune with Christ. And this is through the more traditional things like memorizing the scripture and, and reading the scripture. Maybe you need to do a proverb a day um, or a psalm a day. Um, maybe you need to spend time in prayer. Um, we all need to spend time communing with Christ. Um, I have a quote here I'll end with. Um, I'm a big fan of a pastor, Tim Keller. I uh, don't agree with everything, but uh, he's really impacted my life. And <clears throat> he's, uh, he has pancreatic cancer, so not doing so well. And I just listened to a podcast that he just gave a couple weeks ago. So in the midst of all this struggle that he's going through, this is what he said about one of the most important things uh, to help him through his Christian life. He's talking about prayer, and he says, it's not just praying about things, it's communion with God. The purpose of prayer is to actually have the love of God shed abroad on your heart, to actually see his face, to actually sense the grace of God. There actually has to be a genuinely experiential life, not just say your prayers, not just read your Bible. You have got to have a vibrant prayer life, and if you are too busy for that, it's deadly. And that's a good reminder especially that scripture, reading, memorization are not meant to just be meaningless habits, but genuine times of spending time with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word.